Welcome to Not Your Boyfriend's Sports Show. I'm your host, Maeve, and this week on the show, it's a Father's Day special. My dad, Jim, is here to talk sports, fatherhood, and when the two collide. I call my dad Da, just like the Irish, so don't be confused about that. And Da, welcome to the show. It's good to be here, Maeve. (laughs) All right, so since you could arguably be called my original sports talk co-host, I thought thought that it would only be fitting if you helped me out with this week in sports. Okay. All right, so this week, Oklahoma defeated Auburn 2-1 in Game 3 of the Women's College World Series to win the national championship. And it was a very exciting series, with Oklahoma taking Game 1 3-2 and then losing a 7-0 lead in Game 2. They were ultimately defeated in extra innings by Auburn so that the series went to a Game 3. The Sooners in Game 3 went up 2-0 early, and Auburn could never catch up. They at one point botched the enviable situation of having bases loaded with no outs. However, Paige Parker, who is Oklahoma's dominant pitcher, proved why she's really at the top of the game, and she got her team out of that jam and ultimately delivered them the championship. So, Da, I know you were watching because you called me a couple times about it. So what were the highlights of this series for you? Well, I uh, have to confess, I watched games one and two. I did not see game three. I was out uh, that night. Uh, Game one uh, was an excellent three to two pitcher's duel. Uh, Low scoring, high intensity, good opening game of the series. Uh, But for me, really, the advertisement for... College softball was game two, which was just a great, great softball game to watch. Very exciting. And at a couple of levels, I think, really exemplified how much better women's sports are today than they were when I was a kid growing up. And I'll just mention two things that summarize it uh, for me. Uh, There was a play, I think, in the sixth inning when the Auburn left fielder robbed the Oklahoma hitter of a home run. Just a spectacular catch, literally jumping over the fence to snag the ball and bring it back into the field to play, record the out, stop Oklahoma from uh, uh, widening the lead, uh, and kind of saving the game at that point. Excellent athletic play, really top-notch. And then, of course, the, 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 uh, the coup de grace, in the uh, first extra inning when uh, the Auburn girl hit a walk-off Grand Slam home run to win the game. I think the yeah. final score was, what, 11-7 to 7 or something like that? Yeah. Really excellent. Great drama. Uh, you, couldn't, you really couldn't have asked for a better game. And the other thing that I love about women's uh, college softball is the cheering and the singing that oh, they yeah. all do, which is... <laughs> So much fun to listen to. I love it. I think it's. I think we should all sing more. Well, anyway, sounds like A plus on the women's yeah, college definitely, series. Yeah, definite A yeah. plus. Yeah. All right. Well, our next and final story for this week in sports is tennis star Maria Sharapova. Oh, D plus for Maria. <laughs> Maria Sharapova, who was of course known worldwide as the only other women's tennis star people know besides. The Williams sisters. Yeah. Um, she, this week, was suspended from tennis for two years by the International Tennis Federation for her use of the banned substance meldonium. So back in January, she failed a doping test before the Australian Open, which thus precipitated this whole process leading to her suspension. And meldonium was added to the banned substance list as of January 1st, 2016. Sharapova maintains that she had been prescribed the drug for a decade because of her family's history with heart disease and diabetes. And she was unaware, she claims, that the drug had been banned. Um, She openly admitted to using the drug. She took full responsibility for it. Um, and the drug is meant to increase blood and oxygen flow. 
So Sharapova is now appealing the decision she is using as her main argument that the tribunal did not find that she intentionally used the drug. And it's that intentionality where she thinks uh, the her ban is too harsh. Um, besides the obvious impact on her actual tennis playing career, she also stands to lose a lot of money from endorsement deals. Um, so I'll put it to you, Dodd. Do you believe her or do you think she's an innocent bystander or is she a dirty cheat? Was this decision fair? Well, this case really is a microcosm of all of the problems in sports as we try to sort out who's doing it clean and who's not. And then we try to sort out, is that even important to know? Uh, You know, do performance-enhancing drugs really play a role in all of this, or is it really just so much of a a placebo effect? I don't know. Um, As for Maria, boy, dumb, dumb, dumb. You've just cost yourself $50 million, according to the New York Times. Uh, All you had to do was have your agent or your manager notify the tennis officials that you had this drug by prescription from your doctor, and they would make an accommodation for you, uh, and you don't do that? Wow, I'm sorry. Especially a five-time Grand Slam winner who's been around for 10, 12 years, who knows the ins and outs of things. This was such an easy one, and you missed it? Well, when people, you know, miss an easy one, of course, I start to think to myself, nobody misses the easy one. There's something else behind this. And, you know, behind this is Maria, who's a Russian. Uh, The Russians have been exposed, especially in the past six, eight months, as having a massive state-organized drug cheating program. (laughs) Yeah. And this drug, uh, what is it called, Melodium or whatever it Meldonium. is? Meldonium. Has been a part of the cheating program that has now been uncovered. And it wasn't just Maria, but it was many, many, many Russian athletes who were using this. The thing that struck me about this case is that in the meantime, I think it was, what, only only two months ago or so, there was the huge investigation and release by BuzzFeed, actually, that uh, there's been major high-level match-fixing in tennis. Right. And so on the one hand, you know, in the wake of that news, it's hard to then turn around and say that this organization should be trusted with enforcement of any type of rules. Mm. And why should I care what you say when you're rigging the sport and and having players cheat in a different way? But, you know, cheating is cheating. Yeah. So it's a hard it's a hard pill to swallow from this particular source of authority, I think. She's a little fish in a big corrupt pond, yeah. but she's a little fish because she put herself there. Well, she's a famous little fish, yeah. so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, all right, all we're right. gonna let's wrap it up on this week in sports for now because we have lots more to get to. Okay. Um. So, um, when we come back, we're still with Da, and we're gonna be talking about sports and fatherhood and um, raising such a wonderful daughter as you have. One of the great (laughs) pleasures of my life. Okay, so welcome back to the show. As some of our longtime listeners will remember, last year for Mother's Day, Bryn and I spoke with our mothers about uh, Title IX and growing up in that era and how they became sports fans So uh, and what they've learned about motherhood through sports. So I thought that this year for Father's Day, it was only fair because I love both my parents equally. No, you uh, do not. <laughs> oh, don't lie to the people, Maeve. Come on. I know I'm 1B. Come on. Uh, no, da. Yeah, Come on. Here we are. We're All having right. a whole episode dedicated to you. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Fair you don't enough. even have to share yours. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like to share well with others. All right. So, um, Da, let's start back at the beginning, which is where I like to start most of my interviews. Yep. Uh, how did you become a sports fan? And what are your early memories that uh, really made you into the sports fan that you are? 
My uh, beginnings in sports uh, started probably because I grew up in an era, and I'm born in 1953, so I'm basically growing up in the 60s. And in that era, when uh, you came home from school, uh, your mother told you directly to uh, change from your school clothes and your play clothes, go to the playground and stay there until the dinner bell rang. <laughs> and it doesn't take long before play gets organized into sport. And I was quickly at the playground learning all about baseball. And that was really the major sport when I was a kid growing up. It was mm -hmm. the sport I played most regularly. And it's the sport I still love the most to this very day. And then, you know, you, you just... Uh, I always loved the excitement of the game. I loved the strategy of the game. I loved the competition of the game. And where else do you go in modern days to get that kind of adrenaline rush? And it just has always, from the time I was in grade school, been a major part of what I do. I mean, I, I think it would be fair to say that the Boston Red Sox are perhaps your first love. Yes, I think that's <laughs> probably my last love, too. <laughs> don't, don't tell your mother. Don't tell mama. No, don't tell God. I won't be able to explain that one. <laughs> but yes, I am an ardent Red Sox fan. Who is the Red Sox player that you will always point to as your favorite? Kyle Yastrzemski. I became a baseball player and fan in 1961 when I was eight. As it happens, that was Kyle Yastrzemski's rookie year with the Boston Red Sox. Hmm, you were both rookies. Yes, we were. And... <laughs> I was taken to my first Red Sox game in June of 1961 by my father. So we went into Fenway Park, which was, to me, just this incredible, you know, cathedral of baseball. And uh, the Red Sox, I won't go into all of the long details of it, but they were playing a doubleheader that day against the Washington Senators. Huh. And they uh, were losing 12-5 to in the ninth inning with two outs. And rallied to score eight runs and win the game thirteen to twelve. And that wow. was literally you can't beat that you, as an introduction. How about that, really? And uh, I just thought to myself, that is the most exciting thing I've ever seen. And literally, from nineteen sixty-one till nineteen eighty-three, Kyle Stremski was my favorite Red Sox player, and I followed him and them religiously. And you got to meet him, too. I did. I won an auction bid for the Jimmy Fund, and my winnings were a jersey signed by Captain Carl, who uh, wore this jersey on his final game when he took the famous uh, running tour of Fenway Park and shook hands with 35,000 people. And uh, <laughs> I had uh, lunch with him at a restaurant that no longer exists anymore called Anthony's Pier 4, which was a... Boston landmark, and I took my sister because she, you know, uh, Dottie was a, yeah. uh, and is a big, big baseball fan. So I took her as my guest, and uh, Kyle Stremski spent two hours with us and answered every question I had that I could possibly think of. It was, it was a wonderful, wonderful afternoon, and uh, as I say, he was and is my favorite of all time. I still have the jersey. Um, mm -hmm. and uh, I still think finally of Captain Cull. Well, I think speaking of, of how many hours of sports you've watched, is that because of that, I've also watched hours upon hours of sports, and uh, one of my first and enduring memories of watching sports with you is how many questions I would ask you. Yes. I You never tired of answering them. I think especially I remember this with football because it was not a sport that I played personally. Mm -hmm. And you were eternally patient and always answered my questions, no matter how big or small. And it's how we spent a lot of time yes, together. Yes, did. 
So what do you remember as kind of the foundational moments of our sports bonding, as it were? Uh, the first thing I would say is I remember, uh, and your mother really gets uh, full credit for this, when your brother, who's a couple of years older than you, turned, what, four? Uh, she signed him up for this little soccer league, you know, uh, run around and chase the ball, and, and afterwards we'll give you an ice cream. And because she'd done that with him, uh, when you came along a couple of years later, you know, you got signed up for a soccer team as well. And so by the time you were, I'm going to say five or six, um, it was it was our family's kind of regular, steady Saturday deal that on Saturday mornings we were going to soccer games. And so I think initially I would say the first thing I remember is watching you play soccer as, you know, a five- or a six-year-old and um, being uh, amazed and impressed at uh, how good you were, seriously, <laughs> and how, in my view, much more developed than the other girls you were in understanding the game. Again, you know, the tactics of a game. Uh, but you were clearly smart, the, the smartest kid on the field. You had figured it out. And I liked that about you. <laughs> I, thought, I thought I could work with this, with this one. She's smart. Um, and so I think from that, I, I thought to myself, well, first of all, you're my daughter and I love you. And who wouldn't want to spend time with you? Um, but I, as you know, as people listening to this now know, I am big into sports, and so I would like to spend time with you doing something that I'm interested in. That <laughs> you like to do. <laughs> so I would kind of lure you into it. I would say, so that early on, watching you play soccer as a six-year-old uh, led me to believe that you were going to be somebody who would be athletic for most of your <laughs> remaining youth youthful years uh and you were the only thing that that you didn't do that you should have done and i tell this to the world is you should have stayed (laughs) swimming although i think back on it and you you had excellent strokes but no matter how good your strokes were you just never went fast (laughs) (laughs) it just never happened for you and 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 so swimming which of course is all about i'm a hundredth of a second faster than you are didn't really seem to appeal to you and no matter how i tried to maneuver or manipulate you i could not get you to continue with your swimming career well i do want to say about the swimming let the record show that (laughs) that i do look back on standing up to you and telling you that i did not want to swim that year is one of my like foundational moments of independence and speaking my mind and you know questioning authorities. Well, all of that is true, but you must also <laughs> recognize now that it was the wrong decision that you should have stayed with swimming. <laughs> and what do you do now for exercise? I swim. I do. All right, so there it is, and it's a great sport. I'll still give you credit for it because. I think you raised a um, independent-minded young woman, and that was my first maneuver toward toward well, my I, present I, state of should, state of we, being. <laughs> we should note for the record <laughs> that we respected your decision, and we did not make you go back to the swim team. It's true. Uh, <laughs> although you should have. Yeah. Well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think. Um, if if not swimming, something that I learned from you about sports in general is to play to your strengths. Yes. And you you alluded to this in, in talking about my early, early days of soccer, but um you know, we used to joke and I mean it was real, now we joke about it, but you used to give me a dollar for every girl that I knocked down. Correct. Uh, and this was to encourage, you know, physicality and aggressive play. Right. Because you know, I was never going to be the fastest runner and I was never going to be the best dribbler or, you know, whatever skill, but I was tough and I was left footed. And so I could be a good defender. 
And, or, you know, with Ben, with my brother, for instance, you had him bat lefty, even though he's right-handed to give him kind of an edge. So what were you trying to teach us or expose us to by getting us involved in sports? Well, I think sports does many good things for people. And among them uh, is the uh, possibility that you can have some success and I think success is a very, very important ingredient in a kid's life. The more success a kid has in whatever field, the more likely he or she is going to think, hey, I can do this. I have the confidence that I'm going to get a good result in whatever, drawing this picture or you know, doing this chemistry experiment or writing this poem or whatever it is. Sports gives you the chance to have some success. But to have success... You need to kind of think out what is it can I do and, and, and what is it that's difficult for me and how can I kind of play to my strengths and avoid my weaknesses? Because mm-hmm. you, obviously you're more likely to have success if you're playing to your strengths. Well, so still, still talking about our family and sports, but switching gears a little bit. Um, growing up, sports was one of the number one topics that we always talked about around the dinner table or yeah. wherever we went. Um, and so I grew up and I like to think still am very conversant in sports because that was our family's normal. Yep. And I think as I've discussed on this show before that women so often get ignored or minimized in sports conversations because the default is to think that they're uninformed or they're uninterested. Mm -hmm. Um, so was there a part of you that was actively setting me up to hold my own? Yes, because definitely. I think, you know, and I, I, I believe that we talked about this with Mama on her episode, but, you know, she said before that it was important for her that I knew about sports right. so that I would have something to talk about with men, yep. which sounds like very gendered and kind of backwards, but her point was like, if you're trying to make friends, if you're trying to meet new people, if you're trying to, you know, get in with your boss or, or you know, another colleague or whatever, having sports as a mutual language is a big advantage. So I, I agree with that, and I think your mother and I jointly agreed that that was a useful thing for for kids and 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 for you know uh, our little girl in particular that she should be adept at more things than just, oh, you know, I'm going to sew or I'm going to cook or I'm going to, you know, sing in a choir. Although you did sing in a choir and it was, or a chorus, I guess one should say, and it was great stuff. But it wasn't, you know, the the fact that you were doing that didn't mean that we couldn't also have uh, a, a sports foundation and also... Uh, encourage you to read about sports, have an opinion about sports, enjoy sports across the gender lines. So yes, that was, I would say, part of a plan. Um, so do you, I guess the bigger question is like, when you think of me as a sports fan, how much of that do you think you led and how much do you think you followed? Boy, that's always the... You know, what was the great line from Dorothy Parker about you can lead a horse to water... Uh, but you can't make them drink, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know that anybody could ever answer that question. You you create the opportunity, you foster, you know, the 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 environment. You you maybe lead by example, and then you just sit back and hope, and and see what takes and what doesn't. Because of course, yeah. you know, one one of the things you learn when 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 you're a parent is that um, despite what you think before you're a parent, oh, I'm going to have children, and I'm going to raise the best children ever, and they're going to be you know, just like this, and we're going to teach them that and all the rest of it. Well, one of the things that you learn is that you never factored, boy, you know, the children are individuals too. <laughs> and, and they bring their own stuff to you know, the game. Or, yeah. or the children have friends. I had never really known or figured how important friends are in in a child's uh, upbringing, or coaches. 
Yeah. Boy, you know, one good coach can, you know, literally light a fire. One bad coach, and boy, more kids quit a team than you can shake a stick at, no matter what the parents have said or done over the years. So I don't know. Um, what do you want to say? It's 50-50? <laughs> uh, we can put it there. We can yeah. draw it down the middle. <laughs> Obviously, we've established that you and I have spent long hours discussing sports with each other from every angle imaginable. Many times, yes. <laughs> and every once in a while, you and I will disagree. That's uh, Especially... Happen. Especially when it comes to women's sports. Yes. Um, for instance, you have said before, and perhaps your views have changed, so feel free to update this opinion. Okay. But as I remember it, you've said before that you do not love playing golf with women because they hit from different tees and they take more shots and they slow down the game. Um, but on the other hand, you are also the first person to call me with women's sports news yep. or when, you know, a team is playing or there's really a match I should be watching yep. or something. And you are probably much more informed about women's sports than the average sports mm. fan. So uh, how have your attitudes toward women's sports changed or developed over your life? Well, I think they've really changed a lot. And, um, you know, so you have to go back to the point of the beginning when I was uh, a kid growing up, girls did not really participate in sports uh, very much. Uh, Title IX hadn't been passed. Uh, girls, if they were around the athletic games at all, were there as cheerleaders, at least when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, and of course, all of the sports that you would see on television or that you would read about in the sports pages were about men and boys. Yeah. So girls weren't even really a part of the equation. Yeah. And then Title IX was passed in the early 70s. And that was kind of like the first uh, acknowledgement that I can remember that, you know, everybody should be out here doing this. It should be, there, there should be equal opportunities for everybody to play a game. Mm -hmm. And I um, bought into that. I was, I was big into the equality idea. Everybody should have an opportunity, not just in sports, but in whatever. What you do with your opportunity might be your own business, but you, you, everybody gets in at bat, put it that way. And yeah. we'll, we'll see what you can do with it. <laughs> and so society starts changing as measured by that legislation gets passed. And then, um, you know, I get married and we have children and there's, you know, there's Maeve. And you, when it's your own daughter uh, and you're going to the games and you're watching the games or, you know, you, you're picking somebody up at, at practice and bringing them home and talking about, you know, what happened at practice that day, or, you know, you're just kind of generally uh, listening, you begin to see, boy, I thought she, she likes this too, and she's having fun at this too, and she's got a point of view, and she's saying and doing things differently than I do, um, but I embraced that. I thought that was part of the fun of it all. And so, of course, it's easier to generalize from, well, you know, my daughter should have every opportunity to play soccer on a good field with good equipment, with good coaches and good teammates, to, well, every girl should have that chance. Yeah. So watching you through the years also contributed to my... Uh, ability to think, geez, you know, this is good stuff too. It's different from boy sports, uh, but it's good in its own way. And so, you know, I think over over the years, I uh, have been educated, and I am now able to see and to understand other people, i.e. women, like their sports too, and can offer me things that are dramatic and uh, graceful and interesting. So it has changed, and I've changed with it. When you think about professional sports in particular 
And many people still make the argument that, uh, you know, the women's game is less fun to watch. It's less competitive. Yeah. It's less athletic. Yeah. That sort of thing. You know, my, my point has always been, sure, you know, they're different games, but they've also been built along much different resources and uh, exposure. Yep. So would you agree with that? Or do you still think that there's an inherent kind of less exciting aspect to women's sports than men's? No, I, uh, I don't think that there's an inherent less exciting aspect. I do think that the uh, quality of or the technical level of achievement in athletics is likely to be uh, established at a higher level by men than by women. You know, if I'm 6'3", 210, and you're 5'8", 150, then I'm more likely to kick the football further than you or to hit the golf ball further than you or to jump over the high bar, uh, you know, uh, better than you, whatever. So it's not men versus women that that should be the uh, measure here. It's within each uh, group's efforts, what's exciting, what's competitive, uh, what uh, schemes work, what schemes don't work. I think women's soccer is extremely interesting at the highest levels because they uh, attack with a passing game, a short passing game usually. Well, you know, the short passing game is, is you know, Barcelona plays a short passing game. The Dutch play a short passing game. <laughs> short passing, you know, I, so does Barcelona play it better than, you know, the women's team? Yeah, probably Barcelona does. But does that mean that the women's team isn't doing it extremely well? No. Does that mean yeah. that they aren't having a competitive match against China? No. Yeah. So, uh, yes, uh, technically men may achieve more and better and higher and faster and blah, blah, blah. But that doesn't mean the essence of the sport to me is the competition. And I don't think that the men have a monopoly on competition at all. I think women uh, can put on great competitive events and they interest and attract me. Well, I think the other part of it, and, and this came up in the interview I did with Amby Burfoot about women's running. Mm. You know, running's a really good example where it's the same distance, it's the same track, it's the same whatever. So you can directly compare men's versus women's times. And I think that's a clear example where what you're saying is true that, you know, you can't really compare the men to the women. You have to compare the men to the men and the women mm -hmm. to the women. But I think the other aspect of that is like if you take – the best women, they're still beating, you know, 90% of, of men. 99%. Oh, yeah. Like, the best women runners or the best women basketball stars yeah. or the best women, like, pick your sport, pick your competition. Yeah. They're still incredibly talented athletes. And so this notion that, you know, that women's sports can only be appreciated by comparison to men's sports and that they won't be good until they're better than men is like, well, you're missing the whole point then. You're missing, you know, how fast she can run and how high she can jump or how skilled she can pass and shoot. I'll give you, I'll give you uh, an example of this. Years ago, I think it was at the 1984 Summer Olympics, uh, women were allowed to run in a women's marathon for the first time. And there was a uh, woman from around here named uh, Joan Benoit. Mm -hmm. And she was the favorite to win the women's marathon. And, uh, you know, they shoot the gun and the race starts and off she goes. And those Olympics were in L.A. And it was a very, very hot day. Way too hot to be running a marathon. <laughs> like anybody with any sense would have said, you know, hey, we'll do this tomorrow, okay, when it cools, <laughs> when it cools off a little bit. But she, uh, of course, you know, she went out and she ran her race, and uh, she was clearly affected by the heat. But she was leading the race. She was number one, 
and we all watched it, and the look of determination on her face, and she was all alone. There was nobody helping her. I mean, you know, yeah. that, that's the thing, uh, especially about running. It's all internal. How fast do you want to go? And she wanted to go fast enough to win. She wanted the gold medal. And it was mesmerizing to watch this determination. She wins the gold medal. Now, I don't know what her time was. Let's say that, you know, the men's world record is, uh, what, 205 or something like that? And let's say her record that day was, uh, you know, 225. So, okay, you can say, oh, she was 20 minutes slower. Who wants to watch? So, no, wow, did you see that question that she was asking of herself? Can I win this race? Can, can I finish this race? It's all on me. Can I do this by myself? I thought it was incredibly dramatic. And yeah. boom, well well worth watching and yeah. a great sports moment. What the hell did Definitely. I care it, if her time was 2.26 or her time was 2.19? I didn't care so much yeah. about her time. I cared about her effort and her will. And it was yeah. terrific. She was great. And I think, I think all of those things are true. I think there was an extra burden on the women who came first yep. to always. demonstrate that women just can do it. Yep. I think the challenge nowadays is I don't think anybody's questioning whether or not women should be allowed to play sports. I don't think that's the issue. But, you know, there's there's still a little bit of like second class citizen status with women's sports. And it's kind of it's overcoming that perception. And I think especially a big tonal shift is that I look around at you know, prominent female athletes today, and they have stopped saying how grateful they are to have the opportunity to compete because the opportunity is theirs and they own it and they are asking for more and they're demanding more. And if you really want to get a good perspective on this shift in attitude, ESPN Magazine did a big feature on Carly Lloyd, who, of course, you know, scored the hat trick during last year's Women's World Cup. And I thought it was a great piece and I thought it communicated so clearly that she is not here to thank you for attending. She's here to demand that you pay attention. And that's, you know, I don't know if she's now, what, the third generation or the second generation, but she's clearly not the first generation of, uh, you know, uh, highly regarded professional women athletes. So her issues are different. And her perspective is different. And I don't want to call them her, you know, list of non-negotiable demands. But <laughs> her list of non-negotiable demands are different, <laughs> are different too. Uh, yeah. You know, that's okay. Time, Time's changing us all. But I think that that's, I think that that's the, you know, part of the perception thing. Mm. It's, it's like, you know, you can't just rest on your laurels and say, oh, well, now women compete at the Olympics yep. and, you know, pat ourselves on the back and isn't that great? Because... No, I don't want to just compete at the Olympics. I want to be recognized for the hard work yes, and yes. determination in the same ways that men are compensated for it and men are applauded for it. And, you know, it's a different set of issues, but it doesn't, I don't think that it means one set of issues is uh, less pressing no, than another. I, 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 I'm, I'm with you on that. That's, yeah. that's okay by me. Okay, well, I want to go back um, to part of your question, part of your answer um, about, you know, how having a daughter also introduced you to, you know, a new perspective on women's sports. And I asked you to read a uh, profile of Bill Simmons, who is a uh, longtime sports personality, and he actually started out as a local Boston guy. And in particular, I asked you to pay attention to the section where he discusses his daughter and sports. And for the listeners, I just want to read this paragraph um, because it was quite striking to me and we can discuss why. But uh, he said, one of the ironies of my life is that I was definitely a chauvinist with men's and women's sports before. I'd always make WNBA jokes and stuff like that. 
And now I'm like a feminist and it's all because of her. And he, at this point, points to his ponytailed daughter mm. uh, playing in the field. Yep. He continues, he says, in L.A., where they live, they have all of these academy teams for boys and the girls are treated like second-class citizens. The fields we have are worse than the boys, too. It all just drives me fucking crazy. <laughs> So I had my own reaction to this portion of the article, but I'm interested from your perspective when you read it, what did you think? I thought he should get off his fat ass and get to the Los Angeles Park and Recreation Commission and say, I'm going to do a nasty story on you, given the podium that I have, if we don't have the proper playgrounds and equipment and facilities for the girls as you're providing for the boys. I, 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 I thought especially a guy in his position who could do something about it ought to do it. So I was kind of surprised to hear that complaint. Really? In 2016 in L.A., there's yeah. second-class facilities in there, you know, somehow reserved for the girls? The thing that struck me about it was he's, he's saying, you know, until I had a daughter, I was this asshole yeah. about yeah. sports. And I'm kind of looking at him like, did you never meet a woman before you had your daughter? Like, did you not have a wife? Did you not have coworkers? Did you not have siblings? Did you not have teammates? Did you not have schoolmates? Like, I just this this is one of my big pet peeves about women's sports is like, oh, how transformative having a daughter is. It's like, open your fucking eyes and look around because there are women all around you. And just because you, none of them share your DNA yet doesn't mean that you should be blind to their accomplishments and their opportunities. Okay, all of what you said is so, but think of this perspective. Again, I'm older than Bill Simmons. I think if I read correctly, he was at Holy Cross in the 80s, wasn't he? So I'm born in 1953. I'm coming of age in the 60s and the 70s. Title IX doesn't get passed, I think, until 1972 or 1974. We use that as the marker. Uh, I, I just did not see a lot of female athletic activity as a boy growing up. Now, did that change and in, in, in 20 years later when Bill Simmons is coming along? Right. Should he have seen, oh boy, I grew up and I'm at Holy Cross 10, 15 years after Title IX. So right. I'm sure there has to be a whole Holy Cross athletic department uh, uh, program dedicated 50-50 boys and girls or men and women. Um, I don't know, maybe he is just misogynist but isn't it better to, to to point out that regardless of where he came from look at how far he's gone and if the trigger was his daughter okay great at least there was a trigger and one on a personal level he now has this additional added source of enjoyment in his life uh, and two he adds to the choir of people who are now singing hey there's lots of good stuff out there for men and women, let's enjoy it all. I just, I mean, I, I get what you're saying. And, you know, you've been a major sports media personality mm. for the better part of 15 to 20 years. And if you have been unable to recognize the athleticism of women up until this point, yeah. unless it's to make a joke on, on you know, to their... Yeah. Well, part, on their part, behalf, like, what kind of an asshole are you? And, and there is still that component to it all, that, you know, kind of, you know, jock-sniffing stuff. Um, and you see it on talk radio, uh, you know, uh, uh, Dennis and Callahan, which is a local sports yeah. radio show that's on here. It's all about, you know, I'm a bigger, redder-ass baboon than you are, and I can shout louder than you do, and I can swear harder than you can, and, you know, I'm, I'm you know, rough and tough and mean, and, you know, that's what you got to be if you want to be a man. Yeah. Really? It, it, it just bores me to tears. 
I mean, I guess I I suppose that I'm glad he's seen the light yeah. and <laughs> is identifying himself as a previous chauvinist right. and that he's now like a feminist. I don't know what that means. Like, aren't you what what does like a feminist what regardless? I mean, I'm I'm glad that he's come around and I'm glad that, you know, he had a daughter and all of this stuff, but you know, I would have imagined a little bit more smarts well, and perspective from him. I generally like his stuff. I mm-hmm. generally think he's, you know, got some good takes. And so I was, you know, kind of disappointed to Well, to I, see I that. wouldn't be, you know, maybe as harsh on him as you would be. I, too, and I, I say it on the record, uh, having a daughter who went out and, and played in a lot of sports did assist me in changing my perception of things. Uh, and if yeah. if there had been no Maeve, or if Maeve hadn't been a, a sports kid, uh, maybe that assistance never comes to me, and I never make the change. No, I mean, you make a good point. So, And, you know, Bill Simmons, if you're listening, and you like what you hear, <laughs> you, 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 give you, me a call. I'd love to work out a deal absolutely. with you. <laughs> you. You should call him and say, hey, I read about the... <laughs> The troubles you had with your daughter. Well, I'm somebody else's daughter. <laughs> Let me help you, Bill. <laughs> All right. Well, enough about Bill Simmons. I can't let you leave this show without discussing the 2004 World Series. Uh, well, clearly... The uh, 2004 baseball season was the best baseball season of all time. (laughs) And the American League Championship Series, Red Sox versus Yankees, was the greatest baseball series ever played. And I was there for game five uh, in the, was it, no, what inning was it when uh, Dave Roberts stole? Ninth inning. Yeah. Uh, and we were losing. I was there with Ellen Connaughton, and uh, we were in her seats out by Pesky's Pole, which is out in right field. And uh, these seats, as it happens, present you with the best view in Fenway Park of the area between first and second base. So Kevin Millar works a walk for Mariana uh, Rivera, a great, great pitcher, and uh, takes his base. And they substitute Dave Roberts for Kevin Millar. Roberts has uh, been brought onto the team specifically for the purpose of being a pinch runner. He doesn't do anything else. So everybody in baseball knows Roberts is going. He has got to steal second base, get the runner into scoring position, you know, with, with one out or less. Right. And I have, because of the serendipity of where my seat is, I have the best view in the universe of the duel between the pitcher, the catcher, the runner, and the second baseman. Because everybody's <laughs> going to play their little part in all of this. Or the shortstop. I think, actually, Jeta came in to take the throw. And when everybody knows what you're going to do, and you still do it yeah that really is that's outstanding (laughs) uh sports competition and roberts stole that base he was in by a fraction of an inch uh the catcher posada had made a good throw i do think it was jita who took the throw and put this the, the the tag down immediately but clearly roberts hand was on the base the fraction of a second before the glove dropped down on his hand. That was the single best baseball play I have ever witnessed in my life. <laughs> it it was just too perfect as as drama, as technique, as as history. It was it was a wonderful, sublime moment. And I knew, even though we were still down three games to one at the point of, of, of that steal, I knew when he was called saying, we're going to win the whole goddamn thing. <laughs> I knew we were. And that was the moment when all of uh, Red Sox Nation changed. Yeah. And the curse of the Bambino was lifted, 
and the 04 title, the 07 title, the 2013 title. I mean, it's been really a very good 10 years to be a Red Sox fan. Yeah. Uh, but that, for sheer excitement, for the emotion of it, if you're from around here, uh, when when we won that series in 2004, first of all, there were 4 million people who came to the, 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 the parade. I mean, imagine that. 4 million people. Um, and I'll bet you half of them at some point went to their local cemeteries <laughs> and went to their family graves and had a moment with a dearly departed family member <laughs> and said something along the lines of, Grandpa, you won't believe <laughs> what just happened. The Red Sox have won the World Series, and you are redeemed, you're leaving purgatory, and you're going straight to heaven right now. Yeah. And it was just, it was it was cathartic it was exhilarating it was just the best best baseball experience ever and uh i'm i'm tickled that i was uh, there for that game uh to see it and i publicly thank ellen Connaughton for my ticket <laughs> well you know born and bred in boston yep. i believe in sports I curses do 100%. i know they exist all right well let's take a quick break and when we come back uh da has handpicked this week's fierce lady all right i got it <laughs> Welcome back. It is time for Fierce Ladies. It's been a while since I've done this segment, uh, but I was not going to pass up an opportunity for Da to regale us with one of his favorite female athletes. So as my honored guest, I'm very generously allowing you to pick this week's Fierce Lady. Uh, so who did you select and why? I pick uh, Billie Jean Moffat King as a fierce lady and i say that uh for the following reasons i um as we discussed earlier came of age at a certain time and place where there weren't lots of female athletes and if they were around they weren't getting many opportunities but there are certain exceptions to the rules and one of them was a woman named billy jean moffett she was a tennis player. Uh, she was the daughter of a firefighter from Los Angeles. Uh, grew up in modest circumstances. Learned to play tennis on the public courts in L.A. She was not, uh, you know, part of the country club set or anything like that. And uh, she was um, a fantastic tennis player in the uh, uh, 60s and 70s. Won, I don't know, probably eight or ten Grand Slam titles. Um, so her, you know, her bona fides as a tennis player really can't be disputed. But what really makes her a fierce lady is <laughs> what she uh, accomplished uh, on the court and off the court uh, later in life. So it's the early 1970s. She is uh, no longer the number one rated player in the world. That honor goes at the time to a woman named Margaret Court, who is a great Australian player. And even to this day, by the way, Margaret Court holds the record for most Grand Slam titles in a career. So Margaret Court was a very, very good player. Yeah. She was challenged by a guy named Bobby Riggs to play a match to uh, uh, determine, you know, whether uh, women tennis players could compete with men. And Bobby Riggs was a, you know, guy in his 50s. He'd been a great player 20, 25 years before, and he was kind of making a living as an adventurer and a huckster and a showman. And and he latched on to this, you know, man versus woman thing. Yeah. And uh, Title IX is passed right around this time, and... Uh, 
Uh, Betty Friedan has written her book right around this time, and Gloria Steinem is, you know, telling us all about, you know, feminism. And so the world is changing. And uh, they set up a match, and Bobby Riggs blasts Margaret Court. Hmm. I mean, just blasts her off the court. It was, it was, it was not even close. And this starts all the harumphing. Ha ha! See the women who are no damn good and they can't play. And Bobby Riggs is an old man and he's beating her for crying out loud. You know, women's tennis is a gaff. Well, <laughs> Billie Jean, uh, who is made of uh, much tougher stuff than Margaret Court, I guess. <laughs> picks up the challenge and she says I'll play Bobby Riggs and this became a huge huge sporting event it was on national television it was a prime time show it was you know the tennis match of the century and it was Bobby Riggs versus Billie Jean King and with all of that pressure on her Billie Jean King whipped Bobby Riggs's <laughs> behind i mean uh, ran him ragged until his tongue was hanging out of his mouth it wasn't she won it in like three games right. I mean, she, she she creamed him yeah um i really respected that she was able to do that with all of the pressure on her because of course had she lost right it would have been oh margaret court lost and billy jean king lost to this old man see women's tennis really is a gaff these these ladies aren't playing at a high level. Uh, you know, a 55-year-old Shuckster can beat them. Well, yeah. Billie Jean, you know, put an end to that kind of talk. Well, that wasn't just the end of it, because really, Billie Jean's done a lot of things. So, for example, she was one of the founding members, members of the uh, Women's uh, uh, Tennis uh, Union. Right. And she was one of the originators of the idea Equal play gets equal pay. Right. And uh, she is one of the people primarily responsible for that idea uh, in tennis. And also you can see, and I don't know if this is, I don't know if this, I don't know if I should say this or if it matters or not, but also uh, she was she was the first woman who I ever knew who came out as a lesbian. <laughs> and it was, it was, I'm not, this is many, I mean, she was out very, very early. She was one of the first prominent women I can ever remember uh, yeah. who said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a lesbian. Um, and like with everything else she does in her life, she just seems to be very forthright and very uh, transparent about it. I'm not saying that she was matter-of-fact about this. I'm, I'm sure she had her moments where she was saying, you know, this is a big thing to say publicly, uh, especially in what was then still, I think, a pretty homophobic world. Uh, but yeah. she did it. So she's been a pioneer for women in general, for lesbians in particular, for tennis players, and and she has a a great personality and a great sense of humor. She's still around. She does commentary on uh, television for tennis matches now. And I think she's a great woman. And she's my nominee for a fierce lady. Well, I really like Billie Jean King as well. I think this was a great pick. She, in addition to all of the things you've listed as her accomplishments, she also founded the Women's Sports Foundation. Yep which to this day uh, does major work to promote women and leadership through sports. And they do serious research about women's sports. And they also, of course, do lots of uh, proselytizing about how uh, sports is an important component for developing young women. So um, great fierce lady, da, great pick. Yeah, she's a good lady, and she's done it all with uh, a certain grace and alarm and humor, and uh, I've never met her, obviously, but I, I wished I had, because I bet I'd like to, you know, sit down and, and, you know, have a cold beer with her. I think she's a good person. Well, you both still have time left, so I, maybe I, one day. I'm going to start hunting her down. <laughs> <laughs> Billy Jean. 
my we'll send this episode to Billie Jean and to Bill Simmons and see who gets back to us first. <laughs> I'd rather have a beer with Billie Jean. <laughs> All right. Well, Da, thank you very much for coming on the show. I really was looking forward to this for a long time. Great fun, Miss Maeve. Great fun. <laughs> And uh, I bet you know what I'm about to say, but as I say to all of my guests, good game, Da. Good game, man. (laughs) 